Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 50, The Battle of Cheat Mountain, A Divided Campaign, September 1861. We turn our gaze from the sea to the mountains, returning once more to the heights of western Virginia. To briefly recap and set up the background for this episode, our prelude begins with the refusal of the Appalachian communities to support secession. They began to build their own political apparatus in the far northwest of the state, at Wheeling. This lay conveniently close to Pittsburgh. Wheeling could be, and immediately was, completely protected by the Union Army. In the spring, General McClellan launched an aggressive campaign that raced through the mountains and broke up the few, small, and isolated Confederate positions. After crushing or brushing aside nearly all the enemy forces in the way, McClellan halted his advance just before he would have moved on Staunton. This occurred in the main due to the difficulty of supply over the mountain passes, and on clear orders from General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. The Battle of Bull Run greatly changed the overall strategic picture, however. Before that fight, the Union was closing in and pressuring Virginia, or more specifically its command and supply center at Richmond. Afterwards, all northern forces retreated to the perimeter of the state, except in western Virginia. Additionally, McClellan personally received fresh orders to report to Washington. There, he would take over the building and reorganizing of what was then known as the Army of Northeastern Virginia, but which he soon renamed to the Army of the Potomac. In his place, he left William S. Rosecrans. Although not previously considered a rising star in the military, Rosecrans had shown exceptional courage and energy in battle. He matched this with ingenuity in creating opportunities to fight those battles effectively, showing a fiery spirit completely wasted in the somnambulic pre-war army. In addition, of course, Rosecrans' brand of hard-fighting and risk-taking went completely unappreciated by General McClellan. Richmond could not surrender this territory whether the hardy mountaineers would willingly submit to the Confederacy or no. When men like Jefferson Davis preached states' rights, they emphatically meant the rights of states and not the people. The oligarchy, if not exactly aristocracy, of slave owners dominated most of the South, and they meant to continue. If regions such as western Virginia, eastern Tennessee, or for that matter many other smaller domains sought to remain within the Union, then the powerful would bring any amount of crushing force necessary, and they would call it justice at that. So too, the strategic importance of western Virginia's territory meant that the Confederacy could potentially derive massive advantages from controlling it. On the 1860 map, at any rate, A thin corner of Virginia stretched within a hundred miles of the Great Lakes. In theory, an expansive and dominant confederacy could split the north at this point, in addition to cutting the main east-west railroads. Of course, that theory would require a great deal more than paper to make real. When McClellan launched his attack, he did so essentially on level ground and with relatively simple supply lines, fed from the fields of Ohio, and kept in military goods by the factories of Pennsylvania. So too, the support of the population and local leadership alike smoothed his way in innumerable fashions, 
while preventing an effective Confederate response. To retaliate, the Confederacy would need to dispatch supplies up a long chain of mountain passes by wagon, for pre-war Virginia had not constructed a railroad from the central regions near Richmond up into the hills. And yet, Jefferson Davis made the task of attempting to reclaim the western portion of the state far more difficult by keeping not one, but three separate forces. No especially good excuse for this mistake could possibly exist, nor could it be justified by circumstance. The basic reason for the divided command seems to have been that Jefferson Davis had a number of important politicians who were sort of just doing their own thing. Their importance to some degree required that they have important official commands. Unfortunately, by not outlining a clear command structure and getting ahead of these problems before they became critical, Davis practically ensured failure. These generals had spent July sparring ineffectually with the Yankees and achieving little for their trouble except to slowly get pressured out of the hills, though at least with minimal casualties. To make matters worse, most of the generals in question did not represent the best of the Confederate military even on a good day. The first, and by far the most superior, of these men was General William W. Loring. Loring possessed real military virtues, and a solid combat record fighting in Mexico, where he lost an arm. Apparently figuring that one arm was still enough to brandish a sword, he continued his career in skirmishes with Native Americans in the 1850s, and studied modern military developments in Europe before the Civil War. He could manage supply issues as well as anyone owing to his frontier experiences, something of an advantage in mountain country. General Loring had just taken over the main force in western Virginia following the death of General Garnett. Although he would only achieve erratic success in the war years, Loring always kept his command in the field and fighting, and would have one of the more unusual and colorful post-war careers. Next in this parade came Henry Weiss, the former governor of Virginia and the one who saw John Brown hanged. He was also a fire-spitting secessionist in his own right. Weiss spat more fire than effective orders, however. Although not a stupid man, this was not the best ground to learn the business of soldiering. Plus, he was also in the process of discovering that riling up voters was a far cry from getting half-trained and undisciplined men into a firing line. He raised his own force in the chaotic aftermath of secession, which essentially gave him a general's rank but they were no more experienced soldiers than their equivalent 90-day men over on the Union side. And either of those two would appear a shining star of glorious military virtue next to the third commander, John B. Floyd, lately Secretary of War under Buchanan. Floyd completely lacked military knowledge or talent. Yet his early support of secession, and more specifically, the never-completed attempt to transfer arms south where they could easily be gobbled up by the Confederacy, made him a public hero. Well, here in the South, anyway, he was a wanted man in the North. Floyd nominally outranked Weiss, but Weiss did not recognize that Floyd had any specific command authority over him, nor did Richmond properly organize either of these forces. In any case, General Floyd's command was also a, another collection of self-appointed volunteers similar to Weiss's, and neither group was being well-trained in the business of war. In the event... These were the three men that had separate commands, and as yet there was no clarity from Richmond as to who was in charge of what. 
To fix this situation, Jefferson Davis dispatched his right-hand military advisor, Robert E. Lee. The problem lay in the fact that Davis did not give Lee formal authority over Weiss or Floyd. General Loring, for his part, recognized that Lee was important, and he would more or less do as Lee asked. Loring would in fact largely stay in his existing role as commander of his own undersized division. However, the overall situation immediately created problems because neither Floyd nor Weiss felt particularly inclined to cooperate with anyone on any matter. Lee therefore spent days exchanging letters, trying to soothe the two very proud men, and get everyone organizing against the Federals. Sorting out these problems became more difficult, and also more important, because all the soldiers present had become extremely unhappy. Poorly supplied, and repeatedly defeated, they were quickly deserting. Even those who stayed in the ranks started to look awful thin and sickly, as a wave of disease swept through the camp. Measles and typhoid carried off many an unlucky man, but other illnesses such as flu and dysentery contributed to a slow bleeding of the army. To make matters even worse, all this happened in one of the soggiest Augusts imaginable. One veteran of the campaign insisted that it rained for 32 days that month. This made efficient movements almost impossible and impeded resupply efforts. And Robert E. Lee would have had to do a great deal of work coordinating those movements even under the best conditions anyway. Nominally, he had around 10,000 men, all told, under his non-command. And, with these men, he hoped to surround and destroy a Union position of 3,000 located at Cheat Mountain, roughly a straight shot west by northwest up the road from Staunton, Virginia. If he could get the army in motion, he might obtain a victory against this isolated force roughly equal to the humiliation the Union had delivered back in May and June. Strategically, though, Lee's options were painfully limited. Again, Although the mountains themselves were not the highest or most difficult, they still represented an imposing obstacle to an army on the march. Wagons and cannon could only cross easily at a few select locations. Though this perhaps simplified the strategic picture for Lee, it also meant that the Federals knew exactly where to keep watch. They would also have a powerful defensive position. And if not completely destroyed in one attempt... They could likely just back up a hair and defy the Confederates to attack again. However, even after Lee got Floyd and Weiss into motion in early September, he found the two could not cooperate with each other under any circumstances, much less cooperate with him. They camped more than ten miles apart and refused to budge. Each man demanded, absurdly and pointlessly, that the other fellow march to join him. In fact, they would spend so much time that, well, Rosecrans came down and started to fight with them, rendering the two completely useless. Floyd eventually stayed in that particular state forever, although Weiss eventually managed to attain some measure of military glory. In any event, the two were ambushed at Golly Bridge on September 10th and effectively run right out of the campaign. We'll come back to that. Now, all that being said, Lee did have a few advantages. Loring may, and repeat, may, have been annoyed at Lee coming along to vaguely supervise just when he had attained command, but he had also looked at the maps and he identified some possible weaknesses, where he could cut off the Union force at Cheat Mountain by maneuvering from the south side. 
and he had no problem getting his soldiers into motion and putting them at Lee's disposal. He was a professional. And meanwhile, some fortunate scouting found a convenient track that followed roughly the exact angle that Loring hoped to use, swinging around to the south of Cheat Mountain and coming up on the Union right. Lee's plan was to demonstrate in front of the Federals. Then, another unit would take this road on the south, and meanwhile, Loring with other units would undertake a long march to the rear and get all the way behind the Federals at Cheat Mountain. Lee and Loring talked it out, and they came up with the outline of a plan, intending for Colonel Rust to lead the attack because he had personally scouted that south side trail. Lee had a sufficient force on hand, in theory anyway, and he was going to put it to use. This led to the quote-unquote Battle of Cheat Mountain. It wasn't the worst plan, but it was a somewhat risky and difficult one. Lee intended to divide up his brigades and then have them attack Cheat Mountain from three angles, as we discussed. The problem here lay in the fact that the separate forces could not all scout the terrain, and they could not effectively stay in contact once they began to move. Coordinating military movements is never easy under the best of circumstances. Fighting in forested terrain makes coordination that much more difficult. Now Lee proposed to send entirely separate forces through real mountains covered over in thick forest, making it all the worst. Each of the columns could go stumbling up into the teeth of enemy fire, or just get lost and thrash around trying to find a path. If it worked, of course, then multiple strong assaulting arms should rampage right through the Union position and knock them down completely. If. So on September 12, 1861, Loring and Lee assembled their forces and set off for whatever fate awaited. Unfortunately, while matters got off on the right foot at the beginning, they went wrong immediately thereafter. Colonel Rush completed his march, slogging through still muddy roads and making an awful racket, and for his trouble captured some Federal Teamsters. Upon interrogating them, he learned there were four or five thousand Federals stationed at Cheat Mountain, all under Colonel Joseph Reynolds, dug in and prepared to receive any attack. This was an overestimate, although not a completely absurd one. Probably no more than 3,000 had been stationed at Cheat Mountain, as the Federal ranks wound up spread a bit thin up in the hills. General Rosecrans had much of the army down at Carnifex Ferry, where he was at that moment, driving off Weiss and Floyd, again with minimal casualties. Yet there was still a good-sized force on Cheat Mountain, and although Lee had a substantial advantage in numbers, his forces were also scattered over miles and could not communicate and Rust was not wrong when he discovered that the Federals, intended to fall victim to surprise, were more than ready to fight. Indeed, as he approached, they threw out a strong force to find his position. Facing down a prepared foe, Rust called off the attack. Although many historians have criticized this as a mistake, it may well have been the right choice under the circumstances. At best, Cheat Mountain would have become a bloody slog if won at all. Although many of the other units did get more or less into position, Rust's decision to withdraw ended the battle, which wound up as an indecisive skirmish. It was a skirmish, however, that came close to costing Lee his life, or at least his honor and freedom. 
he and General Loring had gone up with the wide flanking force. And they, in fact, got all the way in the Union rear, waiting for Russ to attack. Then, the Union boys at Cheat Mountain suddenly sent out a cavalry unit to probe the Confederates, and they actually overran Lee and his small escort. However, in the fog and confusion, he managed to get away. Loring, additionally, refused to carry out a further attack, which again, ended any hope of victory, but may have been by far the wiser plan at this point. He had gone all the way around to the rear of Cheat Mountain, but General Loring could see that the Federals were prepared. Without Rust's attack, very little good would come of it. In the end, there were fewer than 100 casualties on either side. Somewhat notably, one of the few men killed was George Washington's great-grandnephew, John A. Washington. General Lee, for his part, immediately and retroactively dubbed the battle a reconnaissance in force, and also tried to spare his subordinates any shame of the obvious defeat. This fooled only those who wished to be fooled. That said, while the Confederacy had lost little, they had squandered valuable supplies and vital time. General Loring fell back to retrench, resupply, and think about the problem. Meanwhile, Lee went off to try and manage the bigger issue of Floyd and Weiss. At the same time that General Lee had been preparing for Cheat Mountain, over on the Union side, General Rosecrans spotted a weakness in the Confederate dispositions. He mentioned that Generals Weiss and Floyd couldn't cooperate with each other and basically camped apart. Well, Rosecrans came down, and at Carnifex Ferry, he launched an attack on Weiss. He probably would have completely destroyed Weiss's legion. But finally, Floyd got into gear and figured he at least could go and rescue the other man. This he did, and the two barely held off Rosecrans, but finally began to withdraw. It was a Confederate defeat, although again, the casualties were quite light, less than 50 on either side. But it pretty much knocked the teeth out of any kind of Confederate offensive. And even in the aftermath, Weiss and Floyd still couldn't sort things out. Basically, the issue was that Weiss viewed his legion as a personal army, and had no idea how to manage it at all. Now, Lee instinctively sided with the cautious Floyd, but the latter was also a military incompetent with no business in war. After days of trying to fruitlessly negotiate a solution, one finally arrived when Jefferson Davis, via the Confederate Secretary of War, ordered Weiss to leave his soldiers to Floyd and report to Richmond for further orders. He would, at least, receive a much more prominent command for his trouble. That accomplished little enough in the short term, because it didn't suddenly turn Floyd into a paragon of military virtue. Instead, the next general to exit this theater of war was Lee himself. After four months of floundering, Lee had had enough. He took an opportunity to exit the campaign with some scrap of dignity left. Although, not much. The Richmond papers, among others, resoundingly mocked him. If asked, Lee could have presented a sound defense pointing out the crippling supply situation, the horrible terrain, a firm enemy with momentum, sick and hungry soldiers afflicted with collapsing morale, and most significantly, the fact that he had no real authority at all. This entire time, Robert E. Lee had acted partly as a commander in the field, but also partly as a mere advisor sent from Richmond to straighten out the situation. This is one crucial reason that he made sure to prioritize the officer's confidence in Loring and Rust, 
and to try to smooth over political issues with Weiss and Floyd. They would, in theory, remain when he had gone. But popular opinion, and for that matter the press, did not altogether see it that way. In addition, one not coincidental point is that General Floyd basically kept journalists around his staff and made certain to feed them, shall we say, somewhat less than truthful interpretations of events. But Robert E. Lee, bowed but unbroken, could fall back on a resource he spent months cultivating, the friendship of Jefferson Davis. This allowed him to jump down to a posting along the Carolinas, commanding the ground troops in a Navy-dominated theater of war. Hence, he arrived just before the driving at Port Royal, far, far too late to do anything about it. For the student of military history, however, the so-called Battle of Cheat Mountain represents a curious case of seeing a commander's personality before his fame. For one thing, Lee created a battle plan that involved separate converging columns, something of a common occurrence later. Although arguably a necessity due to the difficult terrain, these sorts of plans frequently go awry because of the fundamental problem of coordination. For another point, Lee had a great difficulty properly controlling subordinates, and once the battle started seemed to more or less lose control. Both Colonel Rust and General Loring felt it necessary to stop the attack short once it became clear the result would be a bloodbath even if victorious. Lee would eventually overcome the problem of control once he had some of the most capable men in the Confederacy at his disposal, and earn a great measure of renown and respect. However, overcoming this deficit would also lead to very high casualty rates among his soldiers. One final point related to that is that Lee's battle plans failed in part because he started a fight on unfriendly ground. Western Virginia wanted Lee and his soldiers dead, gone, or preferably both. Although some state loyalists lived up there, one of whom actually pointed out the trail leading to Cheat Mountain, many of voluntarily aided the Federals in innumerable ways. This led in part to the shortages of supplies, and encouraged miserable soldiers to simply pack up and go home rather than continue the fight. Lee would eventually learn the difficulties of fighting in a hostile country at Antietam and Gettysburg. There are a couple other curious additions to the mythos of Lee that occurred during this campaign. He began to grow in his snowy beard, but also he found a famous horse traveler up in those hills. He bought the horse for $25, and it would become almost as famous as he was. As for western Virginia, the mountain terrain ultimately led to its downgrading as a theater of war. The Confederacy could hardly dislodge a regiment, let alone the Union Army. Yet by the same token, the Union could not sustain an advance down out of the hills. Even the tactical opportunities came to little. Apart from the skirmishes just mentioned, Joseph Reynolds, after receiving his promotion to brigadier after repelling Lee's attack on Cheat Mountain, himself led an assault on an isolated camp of Confederate brigadier Henry Jackson. Apart from producing a few more bodies for the pile, it came to little. Ultimately, both Union and Confederacy could do little here except to tie down some troops of the other side. So that is broadly what they did, with units occasionally pulled away for other, more important fronts. This led, however, to the broad stabilization of Western Virginia. Threatened in the general sense, but no longer acutely endangered by war, a new political reality began. Less than two years later, the Union recognized its separation as an independent state. Therefore, Although militarily 
well, irrelevant. The not-quite-battle of Cheat Mountain represents a turning point in the political war. It represented the last real attempt of the Confederacy to take the advantage, the initiative, in this theater. When Lee left, he essentially took the Confederacy with him. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.